Welcome to the Underwater Technology Podcast from SUT, the Society for Underwater Technology. My name's Emily Boddy, and each week we bring you interviews with our members, guests and colleagues from the global underwater technology community. Podcast 47, 4th of February 2021. This week, our former CEO Steve Hall speaks to Professor Richard Whitehouse. Richard works at HR Wallingford and is a long-serving SUT member who has been involved with our special interest groups on environmental forces and offshore site investigation and geotechnics. His specialist area is understanding sediment dynamics around seabed structures such as wind farm monopiles. In this interview, Richard talks about how HR Wallingford construct physical scale models of these sorts of structures to test specialist flume tanks. If you'd like to learn more about the HR Wallingford facility, you can listen to our podcast from January 2021, where we speak to laboratory manager David Todd about how HR Wallingford solved the world's most complex water challenges. My guest today is Richard Whitehouse, who's based at HR Wallingford. Richard, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you trained and your career history to date? Yeah, thanks very much, Steve. Yeah, so I'm currently a Chief Technical Director at HR Wallingford in the middle of England in Oxfordshire, and I've been there for over 30 years now. So my background training is as, actually as a physical geographer, and I, I did my BSc at uh, Bedford College right in the middle of Regent's Park, which was oh, a pretty wow. special yeah. place. Yes, I know the spot. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, it was fantastic and had really good wide ranging course linked in with geology, with King's College as well. So professors John Thorns and Dennis Brunsden, it was a it was a fantastic experience. Field work going down into those fantastic uh, journal archives where you just go along those musty shelves, picking off everything that looks interesting. So smelt good as well as giving you a rich sort of uh, learning experience. So I did that for three years and, and really enjoyed the course. So majoring in geomorphology, essentially. And I suppose I'd never really thought about doing research. But the thing that got my attention is because I grew up in Kent and driving down the A21 as you come out of the uh, Seven Oaks area down the, the Wealdon Escarpment, the Greensand Escarpment, the thing that I discovered one day as I was reading some journal articles was that the old periglacial solifluction lobes that had coming out of the Greensand, which had been dormant for thousands of years, had been reactivated when they cut the cutting for the A21. And I just found this really captured my attention and it, it made me want to go and do research. So I thought, well, I'll go off and do research in quaternary geology if I can, because that was what really interested me. But in the end, we had Jack Cardesty at Bedford at the time, who was lecturing in coastal processes. And I was very interested in that. And he had a PhD opportunity, which I applied for and was fortunate to get in sediment transport. So I went down that route. And um, you know, that, that's really what got me into this whole field of marine sediment transport and, and scouring that I now look at day in, day out. So did you go straight to Wallingford from the degree? Yes, I did. I uh, I was fortunate in, in those days that I didn't need to do anything else, if you like. I got the PhD, although I hadn't quite finished when I was appointed there, to be fair. And I had to go and work uh, late nights in my uh, spare bedroom. <laughs> uh, my wife, Sandra, was very encouraging and used to tell me to basically go upstairs and get it finished. So I owe her a lot, actually. But I went straight there. I was very fortunate to start work there in 1988 for uh, Richard Salisbury, who was an authority on marine turbulence and sediment transport. And he needed somebody to work with him 
on large-scale laboratory experiments in various projects that that he had going on. And so I was very fortunate to get that job there and start work on some pretty inspirational lab work, which tied in with the theory that Richard was developing. That's really how it started my journey of work at HR Wallingford. But I remember even back in my PhD, more or less the first day I started, Jack uh, gave me a current meter and a BBC microcomputer and told me to make the computer log the uh, current meter. Well, I'd never done anything like that in my life. So that's quite a good learning curve. And I think that's something that you know I've taken with me that to get people working with you in a really good team, you've got to give them ownership of the problem, give them headroom to solve the problem. And you know, they gain something. You gain something because they've solved something that you need solving. And that's you know a, a good way of starting to sort of build trust in a great team. And I think I've been fortunate in that always been working with a great team all the way through my career. So when you joined, was the Institute still in the public sector? No, it had been privatised maybe about three years. So you were still in those early days of that sort of transition from the civil service or scientific civil service approach to the private sector approach there? Yes, and it had fantastic elements of that hydraulics research station, civil service approach to things. The workshops probably had 30 people in them or something. And now we've probably got about five, but there were all the support staff there. So we had a fantastic library. So again, that sort of library strand, I would be able to go off and lose myself in the library at the end of the day after I'd done my work and just get fascinated by all the references that you could pick up and learn from. Mm. So it was a very rich environment. And again, lots of good work going on in many different areas across the marine sector. A fascinating bunch of people to work with, I should imagine, right from the start. Yeah, it definitely was. And in those days, everyone you know, everyone worked in their own office. Open plan wasn't a big thing back then. So it was quite an adventure having to go and locate where people sat in their offices and go and ask them questions. So you know, <laughs> it, was, it was all great fun, but obviously with a very serious purpose in mind of doing good work for clients, for commercial consultancy work, but also you know doing first-class scientific studies and engineering studies to deliver the research that is a key part of, of what HRS was and, and what HR Wallingford still is. So that, that's a really great part of the organisation, actually. So what were you working on initially when you first got there? The main areas I was working in were on seabed scouring for commercial project applications, um, some fairly long-term programmes for clients, which took in new innovative laboratory experiments as well as the, the fundamental theoretical side. At about that time, this was the early 90s, Richard being a well-known authority on sediment transport and wave current work, had linked in with the other laboratories around Europe. And so this, through the European Commission Marine Science and Technology programmes, led to some really good, deep, long-lasting research programmes with the other labs that built very wide networks and delivered really good scientific research on sediment transport. So this is where I really got into the more depth of sediment transport processes in sands, muds, gravels, looking at methods to predict sediment and transport, how to predict seabed mobility so that you could do screening studies for sites. But because, again, we had this great network across Europe, that's something that's lasted throughout my career. There's a really good set of contacts across Europe, which are really beneficial. What kind of science were you initially looking at for the scour investigations? 
So the first things were uh, looking at the basic processes of sediment transport in the wave current boundary layer that you get on the seabed. So improving our characterization of the way that sediment moves and then how the flows and sediment transport interacted with structures that were on the seabed. So in my early work, the main structures we were dealing with, as well as coastal structures and seawalls, jetties, piers, were oil and gas installations. So there was a large amount of work supporting oil and gas offshore assets, including some quite interesting work in very deep water on one of the developments where we had to come up with a laboratory study to characterise how the flexible pipelines, the subsea jumpers, could be pulled in between the wells and the manifolds on the seabed using remote operated vehicles. So we we did some very interesting experiments to support that. And we we even got the ROV pilots in to familiarise themselves with what they were doing, because all they could see when they were operating these ROVs was the pressure gauge on the screen and some murky water in front of them. So uh, that that was a really interesting sort of practical tie-in at the end, which as well as doing the good engineering study to help confirmed that the forces required were going to be achievable. We helped train the pilots, so that that was really interesting. So at this point, when I guess a lot of this investigation was still in its infancy, it wasn't brand new, obviously. People had been doing research for some decades beforehand, but you'd still have been some of the first to investigate this kind of emplacement of structures in these dynamic subsea environments. Were you making breakthroughs and discoveries that other people hadn't made before? We were. I think what often happens in in science, I'm sure it is the same in many fields, and especially back in the 90s where you didn't have such a huge internet infrastructure, you could find out things at a flick of a button on your return key. You ended up discovering that you were working on something that was new, But actually, you then discovered that someone else elsewhere in another country even was working on similar things. A lot of the work we were were doing was new. But I think also what was interesting is that whilst, as you said, work had been done on this SCAR topic for some decades, it hadn't been brought together into one place, that knowledge. So one of the tasks that I was able to achieve, which was very satisfying, was firstly to co-author a a report on sediment mobility and SCAR for the Health and Safety Executive's Offshore Technology Report series in 1995, and then had the opportunity to write my book on SCAR at Marine Structures, published in 1998. I remember writing that in particular, that my dining room was full of probably about 10 A4 boxes of papers. And over a period of six months to a year, I just gradually, every night, working late at night, whittled these boxes down, synthesised the information, got them into the book. So we were doing new work, but actually we were also being able to synthesise the work that had been done. And I think that was a great step forward because it meant that others could get hold of that information far more easily than having to trawl through all the library databases. And obviously, if they then found something in in the book that looked interesting, they could go off and read that for themselves. So that, that was a very satisfying period, actually. Okay, and you'll have been in the organisation around about the point when the UK and other countries were first beginning to install offshore wind farms as well. So were you very much involved in that first round of installations? Yes, so well, probably the first involvement I had was in about 2003, so that was fairly early on. And of course, projects were being done 
at what we thought was a large scale at the time, but obviously we've we've seen the scale just absolutely magnify well in the last decade. So certainly the whole application of all that research and the modification of the research to be able to predict the scale that's going on around offshore renewable foundations, monopiles and, and offshore steel jackets and the like, that did require new ways of thinking. One of the areas I was particularly interested in was how you take a time series of, of wave and current conditions, you then predict the time evolution, the way that the scour develops around the base of a foundation. So clearly when you're designing a, an offshore foundation, you have to take care of the design conditions that's absolutely essential but they're happening infrequently maybe once in every 50 year return period conditions or one in 100 year return period conditions and the scouring is actually building up incrementally over a much wider range of conditions over a much longer period of time so dealing with the whole wave current climate dealing with the sequencing of waves and currents through the year those are the things that actually control how the scour develops so um, I was very interested in developing a SCAR time evolution predictor, and I'd started work on that. And then my colleague, John Harris, joined me at Wallingford, and he, he actually helped bring that to uh, completion. So John and I have enjoyed working on a wide range of renewable projects since that time over the last 10 or so years. Okay, so together you've really seen the evolution of these sites from small, quite limited size offshore installations to the giant round three sites we're seeing today. That's right. And the interesting thing about these projects is because given their size, we're not necessarily now just building in similar depths of water and similar sediments. We're, we're building over a very large area and the sediment type changes go from glacial till to marine sand waves, the water depth changes. So in fact, you have to start coming up with applying a whole suite of methods that aren't just the ones that were developed for sands over the decades. So actually the whole rate of scour becomes important again, particularly where you've got silty clay type soils, because they may only start to erode more rapidly once you have some more energetic conditions, you know, some storms perhaps. So actually, again, this whole time evolution basis is really important for the prediction of the scour. And over the years, I've been involved in making measurements of erodibility of real field sediments, whether that's in the field or in the lab. And just last year, I designed and commissioned a new uh, core erosion facility in Wallingford so that we can take uh, field cores from projects. We can actually come up with site-specific erosion curves for those soils, which we've now been applying on projects and has been really beneficial because you might have a particle size distribution that tells you that a sediment is of a particular type but actually the way that that sediment is laid down and, and mixed together means that it doesn't necessarily erode just like a clean sand for example it erodes much more in a much more complicated way so actually taking these cores from the site investigation running them in the in the lab and then putting those core functions into a time series model means you can actually predict how scar evolves over a long period of time 
based on the actual conditions. And then you could run some kind of probabilistic method if you wanted to build up an envelope of future scour. So lab work is really important in terms of taking particular structure types. If people want to test the performance of scour protection, we can do that in facilities such as our fast flow facility in Wallingford. But there are then other really important questions about how fast the scour might develop without scour protection. Mm-hmm. And those can be answered with these with these other methods. Some of our listeners will have heard the interview with your colleague, Dave Todd, who will have given them an understanding of what the nature of the building is and what they'd see were they to actually, uh, you know, you know, walk in and see this enormous sort of hangar of a building full full of these models of whole basin areas and harbour facilities, you know, at various scales. So when you're working on the scour side of of the the projects, are you using those same facilities? Or you you did mention you commissioned a new one recently. So, So is it a separate part of the building? Uh, it's in the same part of the building. It's it's part of the uh, suite of facilities that Dave talked about. So the one that we're using most often is the fast flow facility, which I lead on and was opened in 2014. And it's a 75 metre long wave current tank, which we can put in sediments and do work on seabed mobility and scouring, interacting with pipelines, cables, monopiles, jacket structures. So this is where we're doing the majority of that work in support of offshore design and operations and maintenance. And what advantages or disadvantages do you find in using this kind of physical modelling versus, you know, the large community out there who are using digital forms? It integrates the processes that are going on in one place so the computational methods are extremely useful i have colleagues who run simulations for me because quite often you can get a good appreciation of what the scouring situation will be based on the pattern of flow and turbulence generation and computational fluid dynamics models are very good at doing those kinds of simulations we have options where we can drive scour calculations with those simulations however they do take a long time to run particularly if you want to put in a very complicated lattice type structure and hence if you're proving a design in terms of maybe a scour protection design then if you want to go down the route of providing evidence for the certification of that structure, you're going to be able to do that more currently anyway, more directly and more convincingly using a large physical model test because the flow can be scaled, the structure can be scaled and you can either do this with a mobile seabed or you can do it with a fixed seabed and then put the scour protection on top of that seabed if it's rock or concrete mattresses and you can produce a direct test of that scale protection performance with design conditions scaled down in the laboratory and produce quantified information that can then be provided to the client design team, to the owner, to the certifier. And and it produces a a nice evidence base for that process to be uh, achieved. The research projects have been a key part of my career and a couple come to mind. One was the Coast 3D project, which was a European Commission funded research project where I was responsible for work at Timbeth in Devon over a period of about a year and a half, where we had a, a great team of about 30 scientists from across UK and Europe measuring uh, metocean and sediment processes down on the uh, the coast of Devon there. That was a really great time because you got to spend many 
weeks in one place and you, you saw how the environment changed. We, we had storms, we had calm periods, we had offshore winds, onshore winds, everything you sort of read about was there in front of you and we were making measurements of it all and we were able to publish that and come up with some good conclusions about how the sediment transport and, and waves and currents influenced uh, management options on the, on the coastline. The other one that uh, it was particularly noteworthy was the Southern North Sea Sediment Transport Study, which I was uh, fortunate to lead with a great team of collaborators. And there we combined a whole literature and data mining exercise looking for evidence of seabability on the seafloor, new computational modelling and new fieldwork. So we were able to provide a, a very thorough reference document to answer key questions linked to coastal management regarding sediment transport from near shore to the coast. So those were really key projects, great teams I was able to work with and lasting outcomes. The, the Southern North Sea study is still referenced today. We're looking at more or less 20 years old now. Could be updated, I'm sure, but uh, there's still a lot of very good information in there. The other side of the research has just been my interest in being able to maintain collaborations with universities, both in the UK, but across the globe, and to keep publishing. That keeps me challenged and hopefully putting out publications that are of use to people. And some of this is done through company-funded research at Wallingford. Some of it's done through external research. And I think keeping publications coming out during your career is a very important thing that uh, I, I always hope colleagues can do and hope to support them in doing because you never know where your career is going to go and actually having a good publication record behind you is is both good for your personal CV but it's also good for demonstrating that you're at the forefront of your area of work. Richard, are there particular academic collaborators you've enjoyed working with over the years? Uh, yes, uh, yeah, one of my key UK collaborations over the last 30 years has been with Professor Richard Simons at University College in London. Richard and I first worked together in Wallingford in the early 1990s when he was using one of our large wave current basins, which was affectionately known as the hippo tank, for some fundamental investigations into wave current boundary layer interaction. And a few years later, I took on the role of project manager in delivering and running the UK Coastal Research Facility which was established in our laboratory in 1994 and worked again with Richard, who was chair of the academic uh, user group. So we, we've kept in close contact over the years and together with masters and PhD students explored the answers to many interesting questions in the field of fluid and sediment dynamics, as well as uh, seabed scouring. I was very fortunate to spend three years as the chair of the International Technical Committee 213 on Scour and Erosion of the International Society of Soil Mechanics and Geotechnical Engineers. This was particularly gratifying because the thing I've discovered and now hold on to in my work is that there's a really strong link to be had between the hydraulic engineers and the geotechnical engineers. Yes. And this is something that we have to maintain and and foster. So that, that was a really nice period of time. And some of the research that I've been doing more recently has directly looked at that linkage and and how we can work together and achieve better outcomes for projects. So had good links with the engineering department at University of Oxford and currently got a PhD that I'm co-supervising at University of Cambridge, which go across this sort of soil mechanics and hydraulics link. So PhD supervision is something that I've been able to keep going and um, that's been very beneficial as well. 
So you've been able to take part in supervising PhD students and such like as well? Yes. I had one student, well, within a few years of starting uh, at Wallingford, and I think I've now supervised six to completion, or co-supervised six to completion, in areas that all relate to sediment transport and scouring, and maintain links with those students in many cases, which, which is also really beneficial. I've also been able to take part as examiner in, in UK and overseas PhD exam defences as well, which again is, is a really good aspect of the work on the research side. And at Wallingford, I am a research degree coordinator. We are an affiliated research centre of the Open University, which means that we can host PhDs. So colleagues will register for part-time PhDs, you know, maybe over a period of five or six years. They'll have supervisory teams both from Wallingford and from an external university doing some research that is of key interest to Wallingford and funded by HR Wallingford. So uh, I look after that research degree programme, which again is another very interesting window on, on academic life. Can you tell me about your interactions with the Society for Underwater Technology so far? Yes. Uh, so that, that's been something I've enjoyed. I remember very early on, and, and I think rather ashamedly, I still have the overhead acetates, uh, Steve, in my collection. <laughs> Not very good at getting rid of things. I gave a talk to the offshore site investigation and geotechnics on seabed scar in uh, the early 90s. It's probably about 1992. And since that time, I've, I've had good interactions, you know, both in terms of giving talks to the, the group on environmental forces and I think a couple of the Australasian or Australian offshore geotechnics group down in Perth in Western Australia. Uh, and in fact, we have very good links with the University of Western Australia and actively doing research with them as well. So SUT conferences certainly helped in, in making those links, which my colleague John Harris and I have enjoyed over recent years and, and hope to continue in the future. The Fluid Mud event you organised through SUT at the Oceanology International, which I was chair for, so that, that was a, a good day. I remember you were there as well, handing out the prizes. That's right, yes. Always one of the pleasures of the of, of the job. Yeah. <laughs> it's really encouraging to hear that, you know, the Offshore Site Investigations Group and Tom Adcock's team down there in in Oxford on the Environmental Forces, they, yeah. they're doing terrific work at encouraging the next generation and ensuring ensuring good knowledge transfer from the experienced hands to the people just coming into the sector. And, and certainly any of our listeners who are working in this, uh, you know, the geophysics, the geotechnics side, the, you know, seabed structures, anything like that, you, you will find a, a warm welcome waiting for you in those special interest groups. And uh, I understand from talking to OSIG's uh, Mick Cook that they're about to kick off a new committee which will be focused on uh, marine environmental assessment as well. So so that will probably be started oh, during, yeah. uh, during 2021 because, you know, we're, we see obviously that works for people putting in infrastructure for offshore renewables and for oil and gas, but it will also extend into the deep ocean if and when okay. humanity mm-hmm. starts taking part in deep sea mining, uh, you know, which of course is going to be a whole new area of investigation and discovery for trying to understand sediment 
movement. I mean, have you ever been involved in any of those aspects, Richard? I've used the results of, of research, but I haven't been directly involved myself other than um, advising some colleagues who were involved in an NERC project with NOC at Southampton on, oh, yeah. was it Tropic Seamount, I think, in, um, in the Atlantic? Yes. yes, that's right. That sounds like the sort of thing that not gets involved with. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, my colleagues were involved in designing an experiment to look at sediment erodibility on the top of the seamount and, and the way that sediment plumes might move around there in conjunction with co-researchers. So that was uh, pretty innovative and advanced work, I think, by the team there. And that's been published, so that's available for people to access now. My work tends to be probably in water depths of 100 metres or less, but uh, I'm always open to offers. <laughs> there you go, listeners. You heard it here first. And indeed, I'm sure the, the centre as a whole will be evolving as the community you know, moves into these new areas, which may or may not emerge as, uh, as the world starts wanting to access uh, resources from ever deeper waters. So what's coming up on the horizon for you at the moment? Anything interesting you're able to share with us or is it all still commercial in confidence? A lot of it's commercial in confidence. One area that we really are developing is, is this one I mentioned of linking erosion of seabed cores with metation time series. That's a key area that we're continuing to apply and develop for offshore projects. The use of the large-scale facilities alongside the computational fluid dynamics is an area that we're still developing very actively. And I think the whole quality of, of offshore data, we only ever have never quite enough I'm sure most people say we've never quite got enough data, but you have to use what you have available in the best way you can to get the answers required by a project. And if we think what we had even 20, 30 years ago, of perhaps maybe haven't quite got that timeline right of having data for hydrographic survey from single beam echo sanders, and we're now basically seeing the seabed in front of our eyes with the incredible multi-beam systems that are that are being deployed nowadays. I think we learn a lot by looking at this data and we're able to interpret it in a much more informed way because the quality of the data is so good. So I, I think yeah, the use of data, the interpretation of it alongside lab and computational fluid dynamics is the way that we will continue to develop things. And just upscaling on the whole renewables, whether that's our work in the fixed structures or floating structures, it's something that I think will continue to provide challenges and be very exciting in, in the coming uh, years. For a young person thinking of entering the sector, any words of advice or you know things you'd suggest that he or she should be looking into ideally you need to bring some quantification into the job so certainly in our area of work somebody who has a, a quantitative skill whether that's as a spatial data analysis using geographical information system or as a computational or mathematical sort of angle. I think having that element of quantification is very important. So I would advise wherever possible that people have that basic skill. You know, you can be handed data sets and you can analyze them because if you have that basic skill alongside any other you know, knowledge that you you obviously have built up, then you've already got a skill that you can apply on projects. So 
you can be given data, given a task, go away and work on that, obviously with advice and support, and then come along with the basic outputs that can then be interpreted. So if you can make contributions like that to a project, I think that's going to put you in very good stead to build up your professional credentials and profile over the years and as you develop through the organization that you're working in you will then obviously start to become at some point the person who everyone goes to to get information on that particular aspect you do need a core skill but actually having a broader appreciation of how what you might do fits into the wider picture is also really important because then you you approach the specific skill quantification uh, problem solving within a broader canvas that means that you're appreciating why what you're doing is important it's such a broad area richard isn't it this whole subsea world within which we work and you never quite know what new innovative technology is waiting for us around the corner that might require us to rethink how we use the technologies and techniques that we already have i mean i i see people now talking about subsea data storage centers and um subsea uh, batteries for taking the yeah. charge of the yeah. offshore renewables and I, I suspect that all of these will present new new challenges for you know sedimentation and scour and all kinds of things uh, you know making sure they don't get buried or maybe being buried is a good idea you know and that, <laughs> and that does, does does that actually help i i honestly don't know and so uh, I, but, well yeah. burial is an interesting topic because i think i mentioned the european projects i think hr wallingford i mean it may not be quite the case now but Certainly, H.R. Wallingford had bed frames that got buried by a storm moving a large bar offshore on the Dutch coast. And and to my knowledge, they're probably still buried there. And we had similar in uh, Morecambe Bay. We were making measurements with bed frames in Morecambe Bay, which may, in hindsight, not be a very wise thing to do. But they got buried by sedimentation. And of course, once they're buried, you never find them again. But we do actually need measurements under the seabed. So I've just been doing some work recently on um, pore pressures generated in the seabed by storm waves we we do actually need measurements under the seabed as well so i mentioned about the link between hydraulics and geotechnics well obviously one link is also in the way that seabed pressures from waves cause pressure distributions and, and flow in the soil to change so actually having measurements of that alongside all the key quantifications of the soil conditions the pore water um, make up the amount of gas in the pore water, which is a key parameter. Systems for measuring those, quantifying those are very important and you can then improve the theory and the numerical applications. Richard, it's really great to see that you've interacted with SUT over the years and you know, particularly with OSIG and the Environmental Forces Group. Uh, are there other learning societies or professional bodies that you're engaged with? The key one in the UK is the Offshore Engineering Society, Institution of Civil Engineers. I've learned a lot from the talks that they have going there over the years, and and I've been uh, fortunate to be invited a number of times to give talks as well. So I feel like I've been able to share my, my knowledge with the members of OES. In fact, I think I'm uh, penned in to, to give a talk in, in February of 2021 as well. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing what, what new things I can bring to that talk as well. 
for any of our listeners who are not familiar with these other societies, I, I should add, wearing my SUT hat, that we do have a very good relationship with Offshore Engineering Society, Marine Technology Society, IMRS, the civils, all number of learning societies, professional bodies, because it's very important that we all work together for mutual benefit. To finish off, anyone who wants to find out more, how do they do that, Richard? They can find out uh, information at the hrwallingford.com website or uh, email info at hrwallingford, two L's, dot com. Well, it's been really interesting to talk to you, Richard. I've learned a lot. Thanks so much for chatting to me today. Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to learn more about SUT, you can go to sut.org. If you'd like to get in touch with us about appearing on a future podcast or find out how you can sponsor an upcoming podcast, you can contact info at sut.org. Please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and we'll be back with a new episode next week. Mm -hmm.